Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. Your word says that we love you because you first loved us. And you have demonstrated that love for us by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Your word tells us that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I thank you for the brothers and sisters who are gathered here with me and who are joining us online or who may listen to this later who have come to know Christ. And because of that, we have eternal life. I pray, Father, as we dive into a new book and really a new section in the Bible, that we would be blessed. We would be blessed as your Holy Spirit teaches and guides us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, and the first book of the Bible named after a person. Yeah, we're going to have a few more of those. We're going to have, you know, some Samuels and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, well, really, all the prophets were named after their authors, weren't they? And Esther and Ruth and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and First and Second Peter and James and the Timothys and the Titus. Anyways, there's others. Joshua did it first. Who knows? But it is the sixth book of the Bible. Uh, Joshua first mentioned in Exodus chapter 17 as he led Israel's armies in the war against the Amalekites. And he was one of the two original spies in Numbers chapter 14 who brought a good report. So this that makes this very interesting. Remember, 600 and some thousand people Age 20 and above, males who are ready for war. All but two of them died. Joshua and Caleb. Right? The other 600 and some thousand of them all died in the wilderness for their lack of faith and, and refusal to enter the land. But Joshua and Caleb brought a good, brought a good report. And they're like, no, let, let's go do this. Let's go get it. And, and of course, the, the other 10 convinced the congregation of people otherwise. Uh, we're going to see Caleb a little bit more later on in the book at 80 years old when he goes to Joshua and he says, you know, Moses, the servant of the Lord, promised me that hill. I want it. <laughs> Joshua said, go get it. So, well, we'll get there. Uh, in this book, we begin the history books of the Old Testament. There's a lot of what we call historical narrative throughout the first five books of Moses, but there's also a lot of other stuff. Creation, miracles, teachings, the law, speeches, prophecy. There's a lot that happens in what we know as the Pentateuch or the Torah or the first five books of Moses. The reason the genre of the book is important is that the genre helps us in our interpretation of the text. For example, historical narrative will all often show us the wrong things that biblical figures did. Think of David and committing adultery and murder, right? Not often, unless a book is being honest with us, is it going to paint its figure in a negative light or one of its main figures in a negative light. Uh, if you read, I don't encourage you to do so, but were you to read the primary texts of some of 
the other worldwide religions, you will find that their figures are never painted in a negative light. They never do anything wrong. Now, of course, God never does anything wrong. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't do anything wrong. Uh, he lived a perfect and sinless life. But we see the mistakes that the people that the Bible, you get to Hebrews chapter 11, tells us to, to follow their example of faith. But we still see their mistakes. We see that they were human. We see that they are flawed sinners like the rest of us in need of a savior, which is important. But that's one of the things historical narrative does. This, of course, is not to teach us how to sin, but so we can learn from their example, good or bad. When interpreting narrative texts, we will often ask questions about what happened, who it happened to, why it happened, i.e., uh, were there consequences for their obedience or their disobedience, where it happened, what's the main point, is there an example to follow, a sin or error to avoid, a promise to claim, or a command to obey. And these are the types of things that should be going through our minds as we read and interpret narrative texts in the Bible, in the historical books, uh, even though they will at times contain a bit of prophecy or teaching, um, those are the types of things we should be asking as we read and interpret them. Because of that, we do, of course, interpret other genres with other ideas in mind. For example, we typically interpret poetry books differently than we would interpret historical narrative. It's a different genre. It had a different purpose in its writing. Uh, often it will display emotions. And those emotions, while they teach us about the person writing, don't necessarily teach us about God. But anyways, we'll talk more about that when we get to the poetry books. Uh, but we'll be in historical narrative till we get to Esther. If you want more information about interpreting different genres of the Bible and, and understanding how to do that and how to apply them, I would highly recommend Dan Finfrock's Inductive Bible Study Method. Uh, if you want a copy of it, let me know. I have it on PDF. I'll email it to you. But um, all of his stuff's online, too, and a bunch of lessons and, and ways to... Very, very uh, beneficial way to spend if you have downtime. Or if you don't, make time. It's good for you. Learn how to interpret the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Dan Finfrock's inductive Bible study method. The author of the book of Joshua, any guesses? Joshua. Joshua's name means God is salvation. Jehovah, Shua, or Jehoshua. Uh, in Matthew 1.21, the angel appeared to Joseph because Joseph was having a bit of a problem with his fiancée being pregnant when they had never slept together. And he was going to put her away quietly instead of having her publicly killed, which he could have done. And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, it's okay, you can take Mary as your wife. That, the baby in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And when he's born, you're going to call his name Joshua. Now, in English, because we translated English from Greek, we get Jesus. But his name was Joshua, Jehovah Shua. God is salvation in Matthew one twenty one. He says, because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, the date of the book, somewhere around 1400 B.C. to 1375 B.C. during the conquest of Canaan. The purpose of the book, 
uh, Israel being under the new leadership of Joshua. Uh, we see God keeping his promises to Israel, the history of the conquest of the land and the division of that land amongst the tribes. Uh, the book of Joshua is also a type of us moving into the full and rich walk of life in Christ that is ours because of all that Jesus has done for us. A spiritual analogy, as it were, of our victory in Christ. You see, Moses represents the law. And what could the law not do? Well, the law couldn't save us. Check out the book of Galatians. Revisit some of our studies in, in Romans, like chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 12 and 13. And <laughs> the book of Romans, right? That uh, The law couldn't save us. And what the law couldn't do Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sins. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. And so Joshua becomes a picture of Christ, not necessarily leading us into heaven, the promised land is not heaven, but leading us into a relationship with Christ, something the law could not do. It's something we'll probably touch on from time to time as we move throughout the book of Joshua. Now the outline of the book of Joshua, are you ready? Pins in hand? Here we go. In the first eight chapters, Joshua assumes leadership, and we have the conquest of Jericho and the conquest of Ai. We also have the sin of Ai. Remember the guy Achan? He was Achan for some gold. <laughs> I'll make that joke again later. But um, the conquest of Jericho and Ai and the sin of Achan, of course. In chapters 9 through 12, we basically have the continuing conquest that they, con they conquer here, and they conquer there, and over there, and they just start wiping people out. Um, we also have the miracle of the sun stopping, and somewhere in here, Joshua makes a deal with the Gibeonites, something he's not supposed to do, but I don't have the chapter written down. In chapters 13 through 22, which we will take rather quickly, we have the division of the land. So all nine of those chapters are them casting lots and dividing the land by tribe, and then by families amongst the tribe, and then the descriptions of that. So what I'm going to probably do when we get that far is find some really good maps. We'll throw them up on the screen because it'll make a lot more sense than me trying to read all of that. Feel free to read it. I encourage you to do so. But I think us having a map that shows us how those divisions look will make a lot more sense to us than just trying to read through those nine chapters. Uh, in chapters 23 and 24, we have Joshua's farewell address. 24 chapters. We're probably going to conquer Joshua pretty quickly. Now I say that, but you all know better than me. Chapter 1. Chapter 1 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, 
that you may prosper wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do all, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, in Hebrew, Joshua chapter 1 begins with the word and, because it's basically a continuation of the end of Deuteronomy, which was written by Joshua. We discussed that last week. Moses would have had a really hard time writing that last chapter since he was dead. I'm just saying. And so after, it says, and after the death of Moses in Hebrew. Uh, so it's this continuation of the book of Deuteronomy in a sense, though we break it up a little bit differently. Uh, now, God's first instructions to Moses, Moses has died. You're going to take the people over the Jordan to possess the land. And we already talked about this, that Moses represented the law and could not lead them into the land, but Joshua could. God is salvation, could lead them into the land that the law could not. Because God doesn't want us to have a legal relationship with him, but a love relationship with him through his grace. A life of joy, walking in the spirit. And if you ever meet Christians who are really sold on the legalistic ideas, you're usually going to meet people, and, and I don't want to make a big generalization, but you're often going to meet people that are lacking joy because their whole life is about do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And don't get me wrong, there's things we should do. We should be sharing the gospel. We should be loving one another. We should be serving. There are things we're supposed to do. We, we talked about that in James. We show our faith by our works. However, a relationship with God is one based on love. Right? If I did good today, he loves me. If I didn't do good today, he still loves me. Right? And that's the beautiful thing. That's the difference with grace. Is it's not about me trying to earn God's favor. It's about God's great love for us. It's convenient today. You know what today is, right? March 16th, 316. 316 day. Gospel day. God loved us so much that he sent his son. Demonstrated that love. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He wants us to have a love relationship with him, to understand. Go read the book of Ephesians, especially the first three chapters. You find out that we are treasured by God. What a beautiful thing that is. Then he tells him, every place the sole of your foot treads upon, I have given you. Now that's important. Why doesn't he say, I will give you. Every place the sole of your foot treads upon, I will give you. No, no, no. I have given you. Past tense. Already given. Just go in and take it. It's the same for us. So much that God has given us that we have not yet claimed in our relationship with Christ. God gave them more than they ever possessed. If you found a map of, of the what's described here in chapter 1, they never possessed all of this. They fell short of everything God wanted them to have. And the same thing can happen to us. We can fall short of all that God wants for us. Hebrews chapter 4 explains that. After James, we're going to study the book of Hebrews, and we'll, we'll talk about it more. But 
they failed to enter his rest. They failed to get everything that God wanted for them. And I'm afraid we can do the same thing. He says, no man will be able to stand before you as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And that, that's a pretty good pedigree. Joshua certainly watched God do amazing things through Moses. Then he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, which is repeated in Hebrews 13, 5, because he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Romans chapter 8, the, the last 10 verses of that chapter tell us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not peril or famine or nakedness or sword, no thing present, no thing to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. I like that promise. It's one of my favorites. Then he tells him, be strong and courageous. And then he tells him, be strong and of good courage. And why does he repeat that so many times in this chapter? Well, here's my guess, um, is that Joshua wasn't feeling strong. Joshua probably wasn't feeling particularly courageous. Joshua, he's told, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Probably meant that Joshua was feeling afraid, <laughs> that he was being dismayed. He, he watched Moses for the last 40 years lead three million people. Now Moses is, God, is gone and God says, it's you. You're the guy. And Joshua's probably like, uh, <laughs> just thinking that would be me. I'm not sure I would be the guy or I would feel like the guy or I would be confident. And so over and over, he tells him to be strong and courageous. And the first time he tells him, be strong and of good courage because you're going to divide as an inheritance the land I swore to your fathers. The second time he says, only be strong and very courageous. And then he reminds him to keep the law, to meditate on the book of the law day and night, which means that the five books of Moses were written down at this point. Otherwise, how could he keep the book of the law and meditate on it day and night? Then he says, be strong and of good courage and do not be afraid or dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you you go. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 41 verse 10 which says, fear not for I am with you be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now Isaiah was written several hundred years later but it still rings true. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be dismayed. He will strengthen us. He will help us he will uphold us. You know, and I don't know about you, but if you spent more than five minutes paying attention to the news in the last two years, right? We live in a world that's afraid. We live in a world where people are filled with dismay. They don't, they don't know what to do. We live in a world that's filled with people who don't know what's going to hold them up. You want to know something? We have the answer not me. It ain't you. It's Jesus. And so when we introduce people to the one who can allay their fears, who can overcome their dismay, and who can help them stand in the midst of chaos, well, we're, we're doing them a great service, aren't we? The cure, I believe, 
well, cure might be the wrong word, but one of the treatments, at least, for anxiety is the consciousness of the presence of God. God probably told Joshua not to be afraid because he was afraid. This is why the Lord encourages him over and over again in, the op in these opening verses. And, and I think when we're feeling anxious, we need to remember that God's with us. When we're feeling like we, we can't do what God is calling us to do, we need to remember we're not doing it alone, that God is with us wherever we go. It's the brilliant thing about knowing what the Bible teaches us about the, the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is the very presence of God in us, the very power of God in us. He is God dwelling in us. So when you come to church, he's with you. When you're in the car, he's with you. When you go to work, he's with you. When you lay down at night, he's with you. When you take a shower, you know, I like to pray in the shower. Because he's there. He's always there. When you do something dumb, well, he's there too <laughs> to convict and, and to tell us we've done something dumb, but he's still there. He doesn't leave. He doesn't forsake us. And I think one of the things Joshua may have been struggling with a bit was feeling ill-equipped. He was Moses' assistant. He dwelled in the by the tabernacle. Remember, Moses would leave the tabernacle, but Joshua would stay there. So he wanted to be in the presence of God. But maybe he felt ill-equipped to do what God was calling him to do, lead a nation of three million people into a land for what would be years of warfare. God called me to do that. I would probably feel ill-equipped. But here's the reality, is that when God calls us to do something, he equips us to do it. Joshua had been a servant. Joshua had led the military, but... God, when God calls us, even if it's to do something impossible, he equips us to do it and he goes with us. And it's his power that does the work. We don't have to figure it out. Remember Joshua got to Jericho? We're going to get there in a few weeks. Joshua got to Jericho, big wall. God's telling him, take the land. And he meets the, the commander of the Lord's army out in the desert. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither. That must have been comforting. But as the commander of the Lord's army, I've come. And he gives him these insane instructions. I've never been in the military. But I imagine if I were in the military and I was trying to conquer a, a city and the general called in the orders and said, walk around it silently for six days, once a day, and then go home. Then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times, blow the ram's horns and yell at the walls. And they'll fall down. I imagine, you know, I, I'm not sure the entire pecking order in military, but you got like a general, right? And then like a, and probably majors and, and captains and sergeants and lieutenants. I, I don't know how all that works. I've never been there. But it was in the ballpark, right? But the general calls it in. I imagine the guy below him would have been like, uh, general? I, I, I don't think that's the best way. The general goes, you pass it down or it's court-martial. Okay, so he passes it down. Gets all the way down, right? And then you, then you, then you got the, the troops, the guys that actually have to go do this going, he wants us to do what? We have rifles. We have missiles. We have helicopters and, and planes and tanks. Can't we take those? No, just walk around the city. Uh, 
right? I'm thinking somebody's going to lose their command along the way and probably going to get some new orders before this is ever executed. He was asking Joshua to do something impossible. Walled cities, people with far greater populations, giants in the land, in a land that these people had never been to. They didn't have satellite imaging. They didn't have maps. They were supposed to walk up to a city and destroy it because God told them to. Might cause a little anxiety. But guess what's going to happen as we read the rest of the book of Joshua? They walk up to the cities and they destroy them over and over and over again. Not because Joshua was a great military leader. Not because the, the, the fighting men of Israel were so well-trained and so fierce. But because God says, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. Now, let's apply that to our own lives. I think God's called us to win this valley. That's an impossible task. If you've lived here for any length of time, you know and I know that feels like an impossible task, doesn't it? It's not. Not even a bit. When he says, every place the sole of your foot touches, I'm, I have given you, we're organizing a prayer walk. We're going to walk and pray from here to Crested Butte and claim what God has given us. I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. And God's going to go with us. And God's going to go before us. And you want to know what if we meet walls? God's going to tear them down. If we meet resistance, God's going to help us overcome it. Because that's who he is. I get excited with a little bit of fear when God calls me to do something that I know is impossible. A little bit of fear because, well, I'm thinking about the fact that I can't do it. And then the excitement sets in because you want to know what? He can. Verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp, and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess. And to the Reubenites, oh, I'm going to stop there. Long story short, we're moving out in three days, get ready. Right? That's what those verses say. Verse 12. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. And we talked a lot about that when it took place. Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, hey, this is, a, this is a land good for livestock. We've got livestock. Can we stay here? And Moses said, oh, you just don't want to go in and fight. And they said, well, what if we go in and fight? And Moses said, okay. You can have the land on this side of the Jordan, but your armed men will go before the children of Israel. They were the first in. That's kind of interesting. And by the time we get to the end of the book, and they have conquered the land, then they go home, and then there's a small issue, but we'll deal with that when we get there. It wasn't really an issue. It just seemed like an issue. Ooh, cryptic. 
verse 16. In verse 16, so they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. I love that answer. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and good courage. I like this answer. So first, you, you, wherever you tell us to go, that's where we'll go. I love that level of obedience. You know, uh, we're, we're going to do whatever you tell us. Second, they encourage their leader. Isn't that beautiful? Let God be with you the way he was with Moses. If somebody rebels against you, we'll kill him for you. You guys keep that in mind. Just throwing that out. No, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just love this. And then they add, be, of, be strong and of good courage. The people are encouraging Joshua. And it's so wonderful when godly people encourage one another in the word of the Lord. Uh, next week's devotions in the book of Acts, chapter 9, Saul's conversion. And I love that after Saul gets saved, and they try to kill him in Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem. And what happens? Nobody in the Jerusalem church wants to receive him. They think he's lying. They think he's trying to make his way in so he can figure out how to kill people. Except for one person. Barnabas. Barnabas takes Saul. Takes him to the apostles. Encourages him. Introduces him around. Gets him set up in a small group. I don't know how it happened. But whatever the case was... Barnabas did that. So I talked about in the devotion, we all need a Barnabas in our lives. We need people who encourage us and support us. And we need to be a Barnabas for others. That's what we, we need it. We need it. Chapter 2. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly saying, Go, view the land especially Jericho. So they went, and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was closing shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof. I lost my place. Sorry. And hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the forge, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now we're going to stop there just a moment. So he sends out spies to Jericho. Why? This is my question. Why? Right? Moses did that. He sent out 12 spies into the land the first time they got here. Didn't go so well. So why is Joshua doing it? Right? We don't read anywhere in chapter 1. We just read it. Right? And anywhere in chapter 1 did God command Joshua to send spies? In? We just started chapter 2. Did God command Joshua? I don't think so. I don't see that command in scripture. So the only assumption I can make is that God didn't command it. So why did Joshua do it? I don't know. That's true. God did not not command him to do it. 
You should never use, you should never not use double negatives. Right? So my guess is, is this is us seeing a little bit of Joshua's fear coming out. Well, yeah, no, God, God's with you. Yeah, your guys are with me. God's with me. Everybody's with me. Go check out Jericho. See what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, just, just in case. Just in case. Um, and where do they, they come to Rahab the harlot. You know, I love the Bible. I've always, I've, I love the Bible. The Bible's just on. They didn't say they came to a woman named Rahab. No, they came to that prostitute named Rahab. Who, by the way, makes it into Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So she apparently marries somebody in Israel. And that line, she marries somebody from the tribe of Judah specifically. And then that line becomes the line through which Jesus is born. What does she do? She lies to the king of Jericho. King of Jericho sends her a note. Hey, bring those guys out. They're from Israel. Oh, really? Well, I, I, I didn't know they were from Israel. They, they left. <laughs> I don't know where they were going. Well, maybe if you send some guys out to chase him, you'll catch him. So he does. And then they shut the gate. Now, here's the question. And we discussed this question in Exodus as well. Is it always wrong to lie? No. We have two examples so far in the Bible of people lying to save an innocent life. And that's important. Right? The Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus lied to Pharaoh. He said, when you go deliver these babies, kill them. And Pharaoh says, why aren't you killing the babies? And the, the midwives say, oh, well, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. By the time we get there, the baby's already born. There's nothing we can do about it. Wasn't true. They were simply disobeying Pharaoh's orders. Here, Rahab said, yeah, they're on the roof. <laughs> go get them. Right? She could have said that. But she doesn't. Oh, no, they left. I didn't, I didn't know they were from Israel. Yes, she did. I don't know where they went. She knew where they were at. They were taking a nap on her roof. All right, they probably were sleeping. I imagine they were a little anxious. And while we are always to speak the truth in love, according to Ephesians 4.15, and we are commanded in Matthew 5.37 to let our yes be yes and our no be no, which means we're supposed to be honest, I think we can make a biblical case from these two passages and several others. Remember when Saul was trying to kill David? She lied and helped David escape. That a lie may be acceptable before God when it means saving an innocent life. I think it's possible to make that case. Now, it is also possible that her lie was simply a lack of faith. She could have said, yeah, they're up on the roof and trusted God to protect them and her and her family. Um, and we really shouldn't lie if we can avoid it and trust the Lord to deal with whatever situation it is we're facing. And I truly hope that none of us are ever in a position to have to lie in order to save someone's life so we don't have to worry about it. And then we can just be honest and keep on moving forward. But I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I'm not saying this is gospel truth that you must adhere to, but I think it's possible that when it comes to saving an innocent life, that God would not condemn a lie. Now, verse 8. I like verse 8 through 11. This is a sweet couple verses. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, 
who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither, there, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is Rahab's declaration of faith. Right? She doesn't just say, well, I, I know your God's pretty great. No, the Lord your God, he is God of heaven above and earth beneath. The people were faint-hearted. They had heard all that God had done for Israel. She makes this declaration of faith. She believed that God would give Israel the land and that God would protect her. So much so that Rahab makes the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 for doing this, for doing this very thing we're talking about tonight. If you go read Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab is applauded by God through the writer of Hebrews, who I think was Paul, for this act of faith. How cool is that? A prostitute. God can use anyone. Now, one thing I do want to note is that she uses the name of God. Right? If your Bible is anything like my Bible, whenever she refers to the Lord, it's all capitals, which means she's calling him Jehovah or Yahweh. How did she know his name? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And I'll tell you what. I'm not exactly sure. How did she hear of the work of God? Who was, who was running over to Jericho telling her or telling the people of Jericho or telling the people of the land how God had delivered Israel out of Egypt? How did they hear about all this? How did she know his name? And I think the only logical answer is it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit in her heart. Think about the thief on the cross in Luke 23. He says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. How did he know Jesus was a king? Yeah, Pilate wrote the accusation up there, but I seriously doubt he was paying attention to that accusation while they were nailing him to his own cross. How did he know the man dying next to him would come into a kingdom? When you come into your kingdom, remember me. So he knew he was a king. He knew he was going to receive a kingdom. He was dying. Most people dying aren't about to receive a kingdom. It's not usually how that works. Well, he might have known who Jesus was, but how would he know that he was going to receive a kingdom or that he was a king? Again, only could be a work of God's Holy Spirit that he responded to. The Holy Spirit did a work in Rahab's heart. She responded to it in faith. It's the same for us. God wants to do a work in our hearts. His Holy Spirit is moving right now. Yeah, maybe your hair's not standing up on your arms, or you're not getting a tingle down your spine. Does that mean the Holy Spirit's not at work? Not at all. Tell you what, if you're alive, if you're breathing, and your heart's beating, the Holy Spirit's doing a work in you. We need to respond to that. Verse 12. Now in verse 12, now therefore, right, since I believe in your God, and I believe that your God is going to destroy this land, and I know that, that the God of heaven and earth 
can do these incredible, amazing, unexplainable things, I need a favor. <laughs> right? I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go to your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of our oath, or this oath of ours, sorry, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And unless you bring your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's house to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. She said, amen, by the way. That's what so be it means. According to your words, amen. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. So Rahab's deal with the, with the spies to spare her life and the lives of her family. Um, very interesting to me. We have to remember, or, or at least pay attention to the idea here, the scarlet cord was symbolic of the blood of the Passover. Remember when God established the Passover, they were to strike the doorposts and the lintel with the blood of the lamb. And when the destroyer came through the land of Egypt and he saw the blood on their doorposts, he would pass over them. Ha ha! That's what the holiday is named after. I don't know if you know, by the way, that today is Purim. Uh, today is Purim, uh, which is established in the book of Esther. But that's, I'm going to get off track. Therefore, her house became a refuge because of the scarlet cord. And God honored the deal that she made with him. We, of course, have a place of refuge in Jesus Christ. We're told in John 15 that we are to abide in Christ because that's where our refuge and our safety is. I remember years ago, I was, uh, I was doing a wedding up in North Dakota. And they were getting married out in a field. Uh, if I remember, it was, a, it was some sort of grain, wheat or something. I don't remember what it was. But they wanted to get married out in a field. And I'm like, okay, you want to get married? So they'd set up this pretty, uh, what's it called? Like the wooden archy thing. A pergola? I was going to say a gondola, but that's a boat. A what? A pretty wooden arch thing, right? And they had taken all the flowers out and, and they had set up all the chairs. And while we're standing out there for the rehearsal, you know, you're going to stand here, you're going to walk down and I say this, you're going to do that, right? We're doing the whole rehearsal part of it. All of a sudden, off in the distance, someone's like, man, that cloud looks awful green. And then we all stopped the rehearsal and started looking at this green cloud. And the green cloud started spinning. And someone said, we need to get back to the house. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. So we all jumped in our cars and drove back to the house, which was a couple miles away. By the time we got to the house, now a tornado never actually touched down. But that, by the time we got to the house, a torrential downpour and we're sitting in the car going well dinner's inside we're gonna get wet there's no way around us so we got out and we ran in as soon as we got under the awning hail like uh 
uh, like silver dollar, probably sized hail, started following, pound, 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 pound. And I'm just, I'm just kind of a, a geek about stuff. I stood there under this metal awning listening to it because it was so loud, you couldn't talk, and it was so cool. And I'm watching my car get pummeled by this hail. Um, <laughs> but something you learn about hail is if you have dents, you just leave it out in the sun, they pop out. At least most of them. Um, right, the big ones don't, and cracked windshields can be replaced. But uh, somehow our car actually made it through that fairly unscathed. Uh, but refuge, right? What if we stayed out in the field? Yeah, we had cars. Yeah, we, we probably would have been fine. But what if it had been a tornado? Right, so what did we do? We sought refuge in a place we knew was most likely safe. Because if a tornado touched down, the house don't mean nothing. Now, we have a sure refuge, a rock that cannot be moved. Why would we seek refuge anywhere else? And you think about the things that people seek refuge in in our world. Money, or sex, or career, or a relationship, or following the latest trend on TikTok. Don't do that. Just don't. Or, or listening to the celebrity. Why do celebrities think we care about what they say? Well, you want to know why? Because there are people who care about what they say. Oh, well, so-and-so said that I should be voting for, for this person. Who cares? As Christians, we vote the Bible, right? So we're going to vote for candidates and, and laws and measures and whatnot that line up with what the Bible teaches us or vote against those that don't. That's how we should do it. I'm not going to vote for anybody because one of the Kardashians told me to. No offense, you know, Kim and all the rest of you. Um, but our refuge is in Jesus Christ. John 15 reminds us to abide in him. We dwell in the place of safety. And that place is Christ. So in verse 22, they departed, went to the mountains, stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. For indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted. So they leave, they hide, the pursuers don't find them, they return, and they tell Joshua, hey, buddy, remember how God told us he was going to give it all to us? Oh, it's going to happen. Let me tell you what, they're scared to death. Let's go get it. And next week, we'll see Israel cross over the Jordan, set up a memorial stone. They're going to circumcise the next generation. Apparently, they failed to do that in the wilderness. Then the commander of the Lord's army will visit Joshua. And we may even, may even, get into the conquest of Jericho next week, but that would mean taking four chapters. Um, and we have not had a lot of success getting through four chapters a night lately. Um, so we'll see what happens. Until then, I pray for God's blessing upon each of us. As we seek him and seek to follow Jesus, may the Lord grant us spiritual victory in our lives and help each of us to enter into all that God has for us in Christ. May he bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and give you his peace. May we by his grace and power, live our lives to honor and glorify him. In Jesus' name.